If you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open up to Acts chapter 8. So we finished last year at the end of chapter 7 with Stephen's martyrdom and his death. And then we began last week jumping back into Acts chapter 8 where we're doing a verse-by-verse study through this incredible book, a narrative really of the early church history. And so this morning, the title for today's sermon is Perversion of the Truth. Perversion of the truth will be in Acts chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 24. Let's just dive right in together. The Apostle Luke writes this, But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, The intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you had said may come upon me. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, thanking you for the victory that you give us through Christ and asking for the clarity not to fall into various perversions of the truth. God, we know how quickly we could succumb to the lie of a man or to the lie of the devil or to some type of worldview of this world and that the truth would be perverted. God, we desire to stand on your word this morning. We desire to understand clearly what's going on here in Samaria. We desire to recognize what Simon fell into so that we might always stand in your truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, what's the worst thing that could ever happen to you? If you were a young child, it could be that you slip and fall and scrape your knee. If you're a teenage boy, you could be told that you could never play video games again. If you're a teenage young lady, you could be told that you could never go on social media again. If you're a master's college student, a young man, it could be that you were turned down by the girl who the very next week you saw going out with the nerdiest guy at school. Oh, how embarrassing that could be, right? If you're a TMU girl, it could be that you graduate without a boyfriend or a fiance. Huh? What will happen to you the rest of your life? I don't know, right? We all struggle with things that could happen to us. What's the worst thing that could ever happen to you if you're a young couple? It could be that you're not able to have kids. If you're an older couple, it could be that you can't figure out how to send your kids to college. If you're older even than that, in retirement, it could be that things just didn't work out in your life as planned. When I ask the question, what's the worst thing that could ever happen to you, we could also easily answer, I could be diagnosed with a terminal illness, or I could be paralyzed for the rest of my life, for some, from, from some freak accident, or obviously, I could die. I mean, what would be worse than that, than dying? Is that the worst thing that could ever happen to you? My answer to you this morning is no. Actually, death is not the worst thing that could ever happen to you. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is that you would be deceived. 
that somehow you would believe the wrong thing, that you would accept some perversion of the truth. If you think that you're doing the right thing and you live your whole life pursuing that only to find out you're doing the wrong thing, that's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. You think you're believing the truth and you're actually deceived and don't even know the truth because you've been holding on to a perversion of the truth. You've been climbing the ladder your whole life only to find out at the end that that ladder is leaning on the wrong wall. This is what the parable of the 10 virgins is all about. They think they're going to meet the bridegroom, but when they were going out to get oil, the bridegroom came. And we read in Matthew 25, 10 through 13, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open the door to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, that you do not know neither the day or the hour. I mean, that's the worst thing that could ever happen to you is you spend your whole life thinking that Jesus is coming back to rescue you from this world only to find out that he doesn't even know you. The very next parable in Matthew 25 is the parable of the talents. This is the parable where the master goes away on a long journey and he entrusts, he entrusts five talents to one servant and two talents to a second servant and one talent to a third servant. And when the master returns, the one who had five had five more. The one who had two had two more. But the one who had one buried that one talent in the ground and gained nothing. And in Matthew 25, 26 through 30, we read, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and I gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. You think you're being a good steward of your life. You think that you're doing what God would want you to do only to hear him come back and say that. And then at the end of Matthew 25, we read about the sheep and the goat's judgment where Jesus welcomes the righteous and he condemns the wicked. And in Matthew 25, 41 through 46, we read, then he will say to those on his left, that would be you guys over here. <laughs> he said to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All of these situations are examples of people who thought they were believing and doing the right thing, but in reality, they were doing and believing the wrong thing. A perversion of the truth can give you false assurance. A perversion of the truth can cause you to focus entirely on the wrong thing. A perversion of the truth can send you to hell. This morning, we're going to learn about a man named Simon. And we're going to see how he attempted to pursue the right things on the outside. But on the inside, he was still rotten to the core. He was deceived. He deceived others with his magic. He fooled people by being baptized. He tried to buy the Holy Spirit with money. And in Acts 8.20, as we read, Peter says to Simon, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. The worst thing did happen to Simon. Let's make sure it doesn't happen to you. 
This morning, we're going to look at four headings that will help us better understand this perversion of the truth. Number one, we're going to see the deception of Simon. Number two, the declaration of the gospel. Number three, the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. And then number four, the disappointment of unbelief. Let's start with our first heading together this morning. Number one, the deception of Simon. And if you're taking notes this morning, that first blank simply says, he practiced magic. He practiced magic. Look at verse nine at the beginning. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Again, as a reminder, Stephen was stoned for preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 8, last week, we looked at, it was a turning point in this book as persecution is now ravaging the church. And this brought about a spreading of the gospel beyond Jerusalem into Samaria. And the first missionary out of Jerusalem into Samaria was Philip, who was one of the seven deacons. And he is now headed north in this city of Samaria. Philip, we talked about last week, was preaching the word and he was proclaiming Christ. He was not selling soft serve ice cream. He didn't move to Samaria to begin a new business and he didn't move to Samaria to somehow run from persecution. He ran there to fulfill God's calling to take the power of God beyond Jerusalem into all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he's, he was preaching the gospel of Christ. People were getting saved. Philip, Philip, as well as preaching the gospel, was performing many signs and wonders. There were unclean spirits that were being cast out. The paralyzed were healed. The lame could walk again. And so needless to say, in verse 8, it says, much joy had entered into that city. And then we read at the very beginning of verse 9, where it says, but, but there was a man named Simon. It's too good to be true, right? There's always opposition to the gospel, Again, there's persecution. Peter goes to Samaria. Seems like things are going really good, but there's another one opposing, and this man's name is Simon. There's always an opposition to God's work. Our great adversary, the devil, will not stop his conniving, devious, and fraudulent work until he is cast into the lake of fire forever. And this time, Satan is at work in a man named Simon. As verse 9 says, the problem with Simon is that he is a show-off. He was arrogant. He was full of himself. He had an ego that was as big as Mount Whitney. He had previously practiced magic in the city of Samaria. Magic had, here, this word magic refers uh, to the, originally to the love of the Magi, the priest of the Medo-Persians. It was known to be a mix of science and superstition, com combining astrology, divination, and occult practices, along with history, mathematics, and agriculture. It could both be human trickery or demonic influences. The magic that Simon performed was not from God. It didn't point to the gospel. It didn't point people's attention to the glory of Christ. It did not transform lives. It did not regenerate souls. It provided no eternal life. This kind of magic was worldly, temporal, and a complete distraction to the glory of God. This kind of magic might have been said by some to be white magic, but all magic that doesn't come from God's word, because he doesn't do magic, is of the devil. This is an ancient Harry Potter at work. Uh-oh, watch out, he's picking on Harry Potter now. I'm just saying, this stuff is bad news. Nothing redeeming about it, nothing wholesome about it, and nothing about it is going to favor God. In fact, the Greek word for the word magic is the equivalent with the idea of sorcery. It means to invoke spiritual powers and to employ witchcraft. The Bible has nothing good to say about that type of magic, divination, or witchcraft. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Leviticus chapter 19. I want you just to see a few of these passages for your own eyes because I'm afraid that we've started to flirt around with this so-called white magic or sorcery as if it's something to be entertained by. And I just want to remind us, scripturally speaking, what the Bible has to say about this. Leviticus 19.31, do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. 
So he's just simply saying, hey, don't mess around with it. Don't flirt with it. Don't be curious about it. Don't, don't expose yourself to this kind of medium or, necroma- or necromancer, which are people who are dealing with the spiritual world outside of God. In fact, turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, 23. This is how God sees this kind of sorcery or magic or divination. 1 Samuel 15, 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. Again, just with clarity, the Bible says it's a sin to be involved in that kind of behavior, and rebellion is a sin as well, on the same par with divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Obviously, that's what happened to Saul. And if you look at now at 1 Chronicles, so keep going in your Bible, 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13, gives a little bit more background here of what he's talking about with Saul. You might remember he pursued the witch of Endor in order to get direction for his life. 1 Chronicles 10, 13 says, So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the commandment of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. So we understand, again, the Old Testament has a lot to say about this. So does the New. Turn with me to Acts 19. Acts 19, verses 17 through 20. Acts 19, 17 says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, and many of those were now believers, and many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Again, as the church in Acts was beginning, there was a purging of evil practices. And one of those practices would have been the practice of magic arts and the money that was made from it and the books that would give various ideas of cantations and spells. And they were all burnt because of the opposition it brings to the gospel and to God's work. Turn with me to Galatians 5. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and here's our word, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, what things? Sorcery, magic, going to the dark side in any way, those who practice or do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so the Bible couldn't be more clear about what God thinks about magic or sorcery. And it was precisely because of Simon's demonic sorcery that the people of Samaria were amazed. I mean, people will jump at anything. People will believe anything. People will follow anything. And all of this got to Simon's head. So much so that the rest of verse 9, your next blank says, he thought he was somebody great. He thought he was somebody great. He had been practicing magic in the city, verse 9, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, verse 10, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. I mean, this is Simon, at the end of verse 9, bragging about himself, This is Simon submitting his own name for an Emmy. This is Simon claiming his own Heisman Trophy. Simon was saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, and he had won over the pop culture. He was a self-declared celebrity, and it didn't matter what he did or what he said. He was famous. And so everyone was aware of where he was and what he was doing all the time. They paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. But all of that fanfare is not the most disturbing part. The most disturbing part is that they are saying, verse 10, that this man is the power of God that is called great. And the wording here is stating something blasphemous. Not only was Simon saying that he was somebody great, 
into verse 9, but in verse 10, the people are saying that he is the power of God that is called great, or as the NASB translation writes it, this man is what is called the great power of God. And that title shows that Simon himself and the crowd believed it, that he was God. This is a gross, heretical view that somehow they saw Simon as God incarnate. According to the early church fathers, Simon was one of the founders of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is that religious belief that one could be a demigod and that through special revelation and power could have the knowledge and the power of deity. And the early church noted that Simon and his successor, Meander, both claimed deity for themselves. The Greek term here, about where it says the power of God, dunamis, most of you know where we get our word dynamite, some would say. It, it, this, this idea, this Greek term that's used later by more orthodox theologians in reference to both the Son and the Holy Spirit. Justin Martyr also reports Simon's messianic claim. So this claim to be the power of God is a clear claim to be divine. It's noted throughout church history, and that, that phrase, dunamis, the power of God, should have been reserved only for God or the Son or the Holy Spirit. And so Simon's perverted view of himself gave Satan an opening to use him to spread the false doctrine through the church. And like many charlatans and phonies of his day, Simon probably believed in his own powers. I mean, there are those who just fake it and those who are actually believing that they are what they say they are. Most believe that Simon probably believed in his own powers and that may have even been a more conscious, uh, that, that reality and a more conscious fraud that he was might have even rendered him more dangerous and believable. Satan himself thought that he could be like the Most High. We read about that in Isaiah 14, 13 through 15, where it said, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. So in other words, where Simon got this was is from Satan. Satan thought that he could be God. And now Satan is embodying, in a sense, that same lie in the person of Simon. And Satan thought that he could replace God with his own power and his own authority, but Satan was soundly defeated and dismissed from heaven only to end up in the pit of hell. This thought that any ordinary man could claim to be a god was a lie from the devil. Now surely there's no one among us today who would somehow claim to be the power of God. Not here in our church. Now, there's a few wackos in our culture that would still claim to be divine. Certainly throughout history, the pharaohs of Egypt thought they were gods. The Chinese, Japanese, and Roman emperors all thought they were divine. Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea, thinks that he and his family line are divine, that he's a type of god. And you may not think that you are a god, but you must remember that when you reject Jesus Christ and live for yourself instead of for him, you are acting in rebellion to God. And when you're acting in rebellion to God, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, talks about how we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, and that we are following the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. So any, in other words, any unbeliever who doesn't follow God is following Satan. They're being a followers of Satan, so in a sense, you're setting yourself up to oppose the divine power of God. And so here we're again seeing that Simon practiced magic, which is sorcery. We see that Simon thought that he was God. And we also see in verse 11, your next blank, that he bewitched them with his magic. He bewitched them with his magic, verse 11, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. They, they paid attention to Simon because they were amazed. The word amazed means to cause to be in a state in which things seem to make little or no sense. This particular word could be translated as well as to confuse. The people that were around Simon believed in God, so they said, 
but they also believed in Simon, and they believed that he somehow represented God. And so there was some confusion and amazement that was going on. They were vulnerable to someone like Simon. And the problem is, is that they did not check Simon's credentials with the Bible. There was no trace of Simon's lineage being from the tribe of Judah, if he was claiming to be maybe the Messiah. There was no trace of him being born in Bethlehem, as Micah 5.2 says. There was no trace of him being born of a virgin, as Isaiah 7.14 says. Basically, what we're saying is these people didn't do their homework. They didn't look to Scripture as being the ultimate authority of what or who they should be following in the first place. You know what the problem was, is that they were just bewitched. This reminds me of what happened to the Galatians. Galatians 3 verse 1 says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, and yet now the Galatians had turned to a different gospel. Paul goes on to say there's not a different gospel. There's one gospel. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. And Simon's ministry and Simon's showmanship had nothing to do with Christ, And it had nothing to do with the Bible. Simply put, Simon's sorcery was energized by Satan and was used to magnifying himself while Philip's miracles were empowered by God and were used to glorify Christ. So a complete dichotomy going on here of what Simon had been doing in Samaria until Philip shows up and now he's doing signs and wonders, but he's pointing them to Jesus. My friends, In today's world, we have to be discerning. You have to be devoted to studying the word of God so that you can discern for yourself what is truth and what is error. And talking about the coming antichrist, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Dear church, again, don't be deceived. Be discerning. Be perceptive, be wise so as not to be led astray. And the only way that you can do that is by you personally coming to the word of God, by you asking God to reveal to you through scripture how to understand what's happening and what will happen in the future, lest you be led astray by some smooth talker who does a lot of signs and wonders and begins to mix Jesus with magic. You have to be discerning. And so here's the deception of Simon that we're seeing in verses 9 through 11. But then we also see in our second heading this morning, the declaration of the gospel. Verses 12 through 13, your next blank. Let's talk about true conversion. True conversion here in verse 12. But when they believed Philip. So Simon had some followers, but now Philip is coming and he's setting things straight with the clarity of the gospel. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 12 is talking about true conversion. We see the true conversion of believers in Samaria. Verses four and five a little bit earlier here in the same chapter, say that Philip went about preaching the word and proclaiming Christ. Again, here we see Philip preached the good news, the good news of the gospel. And to be faithful to preach the full gospel, you need to talk about, and I listed four things there that would be included in any preaching of the gospel. Number one, the holiness of God. This is what Philip surely was talking about, encapsulated in that, in that word for good news, the holiness of God. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, 1 Peter 1, 16, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Somewhere in Philip's preaching, there would have been like, God is holy, Christ is holy. And they would have had to have recognized it somewhere that Simon doesn't measure up to a holy God. Even if he did signs and wonders, somebody would have had something on Simon somewhere of something that he did that showed that he was but a mere mortal who was flawed. The gospel is about the holiness of God. Number two, the gospel is about the sinfulness of man. When you put any man up against the brilliance and the purity and the holiness of God radiating in all of his glory, 
we quickly see that there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sent and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that the wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the declaration of the gospel, that God is holy, that you and me as sinners, as humans, we're sinners, and then we move to number three, you must proclaim the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Philip was doing. He was preaching Christ, not himself, not the other apostles, not the signs and wonders. He came to preach Christ. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No preaching of the gospel is complete without, number four, the call to repentance. The call to repentance. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Luke 9, 23 through 25, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And so just keep in mind when Peter's preaching, or Philip rather, is preaching here in verse 12, he's preaching the good news of the gospel. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about the sphere of salvation. He's talking about what it means to be a Christian. He's talking about the good news is you don't have to go to hell because you can be forgiven by faith in Christ. And based on Christ's perfect life and his death and resurrection, his righteousness can be imputed to your account. And when Philip preached these truths, many did respond with genuine repentance and faith and they were truly born again. And as the text says, they were baptized we understand that to be by immersion. That's what the word baptized means, to be dipped or immersed. And they became followers of Christ. That's what true conversion is all about. But we also see in verse 13, there's a false conversion. A false conversion, number one, a mental assent, but no heart change. Verse 13 we're going to see Simon's false conversion here. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. One of the amazing parts about this verse is that it does say that even Simon believed. Now, you have to understand that the word belief, pistos in the original, does not always mean saving faith. Just because someone says they believe, it's not a guarantee that they are a true believer. In fact, surely you're familiar with how the word believe is used in James 2.19 when it says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Same word, demons believe in Jesus, but not with saving belief. It is simply a mental ascent. All the demons that saw Jesus were scared to death because they knew he was the Holy One of God and that he was going to cast them out, send them to the pit, send them into the pigs, whatever. He's going to do his thing. And they knew that. They believed in Jesus, but it doesn't mean they're true believers. And so I submit to you, when Simon believed, because of the whole context that we're looking at here, when Simon believed, he didn't really believe. He simply had some type of mental assent, some type of mental affirmation that if this is what you say, then I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to say what you say, and this is not saving faith. A false conversion is a mental assent, but no heart change. Second component to false conversion would be it's a focus on the external. It's a focus on the external. Notice again with Simon he says he believed, but there's nothing intimate here about him desiring to be truly born again from the heart. In fact, he simply believed and he was baptized, but not with saving faith, primarily because he couldn't deny that these miracles were going on that he saw. So he kind of jumped on the bandwagon. He was drawn to the power he saw on display. So he was also baptized. By the way, this is the only place I could find in the New Testament where someone was clearly baptized and yet they were not a true believer. 
And if it can happen in the early church and in the book of Acts, then certainly it could happen today. You shouldn't think for one second because you've been baptized, especially if you were sprinkled as a baby, or even if you were baptized by immersion in church does not mean that you're necessarily born again. What means that if you're born again is if you go back to the true conversion that we just read through and say, do I really believe, have I repented of, and do I believe that God is holy and that I'm a sinner and that it can only be through Christ? And have I repented? Have I really turned and followed him with my whole heart? Water baptism never saved anybody. So don't think just because Simon said he believed and he got dunked in the water that somehow we have to read it as like, oh, he must have been truly born again. It's by grace that you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so I'm saying to you, I believe Simon had no saving faith. He was only giving mental approval. He was focused on the external ritual of baptism And then he saw it as, number three, a way to advantage himself. A false conversion, since it doesn't include the true gospel, can only mean that somehow somebody thinks there's an advantage to doing that, the mental ascent, the outer focus, and apparently that's what Simon thought. There may not be a lot of advantages in today's culture of being born again, particularly here in our state, but Christians that are living for God in Samaria at that time as brand new converts were experiencing a revival and it was happening right in their midst and everything that Simon knew, all of his following, all of his culture, everything about the Samaritan, all of a sudden they're now pointing to Christ and being born again and probably Philip thought something to the effect of if you can't beat them, then just join them. I mean, I'm not going to be left out here in the dust with Philip taking all of my following after him. I mean, Philip here was preaching the gospel, and I think somewhere along the line, Simon got FOMO, fear of missing out. He's like, hey, I want some of that. Whatever those guys are doing, I want some of that. And so he wanted to maintain his own influence, his own popularity, his his own influence with people. And by all means, if that's what I got to do, then let's add one more to the party. But the Christian faith is never about promoting ourselves. John the Baptist had it right when he said in John 3.30, he must increase and I must, what? Decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. There's no personal advantage, at least in the eyes of people, that why you would come to the gospel. It's about denying ourselves taking up our cross and following him. Now, of course, we benefit from the mercy of God. We're filled with the joy of God. I would argue we have a, 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 a 10 times, 100 times, a million times better life in Christ than without Christ. But as far as the culture's concerned, it doesn't advantage us. In that particular culture, he was trying to advantage his own name. He was trying to save face. I wonder about you this morning. Have you truly been born again? Have you been baptized for the right reasons? Are are you truly walking with a wholehearted obedience towards God's word? Because we're seeing here that Simon was confused. That Simon was a phony. That Simon checked all the boxes and he followed all the outward encouragements, but nothing had truly changed in his heart. And we're about to see that spelled out with more clarity as we look at now number three. We've seen the deception of Simon the declaration of the gospel. Number three, the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. The dispensation of the Holy Spirit. Part of what I'm trying to say here is that during the early church, the Holy Spirit revealed himself at Pentecost and then in ongoing ways throughout the book of Acts. And we see that progression here even in this text. Your next blank says the apostles came to assess Philip's evangelistic Work. Let's look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So we would say, praise God for the work that was going on in Samaria. I mean, this place needed a clear salvation. They were obviously confused, as we discussed with Jesus and the woman at the well of Samaria. And now they're having the full gospel proclaimed to them that we're here to worship Christ in spirit and in truth. And as, as soon as the apostles in Jerusalem heard that they had received the word of God in Samaria, they might have had some mixed feelings in their own heart. Like, are, are these people really born again? We've been arguing with them for centuries 
Are we sure they're truly now born again? So they dispatched Peter and John to go up and check out what's going on in Samaria. The apostles have the responsibility to preach the word and to shepherd the flock and to protect the sheep. And they needed to be on site to make sure that the gospel had indeed been preached faithfully and that those who were responding to the gospel were also doing so with an authentic faith. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father, but, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And so again, just because you say it doesn't mean it's true. Peter and John were sent there to verify if the gospel really was taking root in the people of Samaria. Jesus had said in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what does it say? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. And so the apostles said, hey, not only did this, the gospel need to be preached, but we need to follow up and to teach and to observe. Are they observing truly everything that has to do with being a new Christian? So the apostles were there to make sure that these new believers were understanding the gospel and walking in obedience to God's word. And Jesus had said, you will recognize them by their fruit. So the apostles came to assess the genuine salvation of the new believers, but they also came, B, in your outline, the apostles came to ask God to bestow the Holy Spirit. Verses 15 and 16, so Peter and John were sent there to Samaria who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, no doubt, after Peter and John had assessed the genuine faith of the new converts and had seen firsthand what God was doing, they did determine that they were born again, and they did pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. They had been baptized into Christ, but not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and John prayed for just that, and they did receive the Holy Spirit. Now, again, right here at this point of our text, we have to stop and ask the question that a lot of people ask, which would be, why? Why did the Holy Spirit come a little bit later? Adam, you've been preaching to us that when you get saved, that's when you receive the Holy Spirit, not in a, another day or another experience later on. So why does that appear to be happening here? I mean, surely by the time that Peter and John got to Samaria, it would have been days, maybe even weeks. And so you're saying these people were born again, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Why is there a difference in the order well, let's take a moment and try to answer that question. You see it there on your outline. Maybe just look at the next slide and you can look if you're taking notes just in your outline and just leave it there for a few minutes. But we remember what happened at Pentecost, right? Pentecost, Pentecost Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit first came, if you reviewed the second part of that chapter, it would clearly tell you that when Peter preached the word that they repented. And then after they repented, they were baptized. And then after they were baptized, they received the Holy Spirit. That's kind of like the normal flow that we saw in Acts 2. So we're asking the question, why doesn't the same thing happen here in Acts 8? Well, in Acts 8, notice that first of all, they did repent. Nobody received the Holy Spirit who wasn't a born-again believer. They were baptized. They repented and baptized. But then number three, the apostles prayed for and laid their hands on them. And then they received the Holy Spirit. The difference, obviously, is with number three. And I'm just simply saying to you, is that such a bad thing? Is that such a bad thing that somehow God, in his ultimate wisdom, determined to say, you know what, we're going to wait a second before I fill these believers in Samaria with the Holy Spirit. I want the apostles to go there first. Remember, Acts is a time of transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the new covenant was based on the atoning work of Christ. And the new covenant was also about, get this, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you as a new believer. That's a component of the new covenant. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit began at Pentecost. And Peter was there in Acts 2 to explain to them at that time that they were not drunk as, as they were speaking in other languages, but they were filled with the Holy Spirit and this was at least a partial fulfillment of Joel 2. And this was also a fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, where it says, And I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Now, just as Peter and John were there at the very beginning in Jerusalem, preaching those truths and tapping back into the Old Testament to show the clarity of what the Holy Spirit's role is, what the Holy Spirit's purpose is, as we transition from the Old to the New Covenant, so also did they need to be in Samaria as they were experiencing the same transition from the Old to the New Covenant. God wanted it to be rolled out this way. Instead of a lot of hot spots popping up all over the place with no apostolic authority, God chose his divine wisdom to have the apostles oversee the fruit of the Spirit as the people were being converted and then filled with the Holy Spirit. To say it another way, your next blank says the apostles came to affirm the unity of the church. They came to affirm the unity of the church, verse 17. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Peter and John also laid their hands on these new believers to signify unity and the distribution of God's grace through the gospel. And with this, again, was a receiving of the Holy Spirit. And just as there could be no clear salvation without divine revelation, which so often was a was through the preaching of the word of God, right? The way somebody gets saved is there's got to be clear preaching. And we're saying in the book of Acts, the way somebody got filled with the Holy Spirit is there needed to be also clear preaching. There needed to be clear explanation. That's true of salvation. And we're saying that it's also true of being filled with the Holy Spirit. As far as salvation is concerned, Romans 10, 14, and 15 says, how then would they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? And I'm saying to you that in a similar way, how could they be filled with the Holy Spirit without the proper teaching from the Scripture and the power and the role of the Holy Spirit being explained to them with clarity from the Scripture? There would have been teaching from the Bible And then the affirming of the apostles that this is indeed what is happening, just like at Pentecost. What I'm saying is to you is Pentecost wouldn't have happened if the apostles weren't there. And so for the Holy Spirit in the same way to reveal himself with the same power, it needed to have the authenticity, the authority, the approval, the the whole experience of the apostles being there to proclaim the same truth. And then once the apostles got there and signed off on it, so to speak, Then they were willing to lay their hands on them, and God filled those same Samarians with the same Holy Spirit. The the laying on of hands is the kind of the approval. We see that in Acts 9, 17, where Ananias laid his hands on Paul, and he received the Holy Spirit. We see it again in Acts 19, where there were many up in Ephesus who had not yet received the Holy Spirit, and they had hands laid on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Acts 10 shows that the Gentile believers in Caesarea also received the Holy Spirit, Uh, They didn't have hands laid on them, but they did have Peter there who was an apostle to affirm that Cornelius' household truly came to saving faith. What we're saying here is that in Acts 2, which was in Jerusalem, in Acts 8, which is here in Samaria, in Acts 10, which was in Caesarea, a heavily Gentile populated area, and in Ephesus of Acts 19, we see the same thing happening where the apostles were there preaching, teaching, sometimes laying hands on, sometimes not, in order to affirm the unity of the local church. At this point, the apostle oversight was key to having the church maintain a tight unity, which was God's plan. That's why we read in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so by delaying the Spirit's coming until Peter and John arrived, God preserved the unity of the church. The apostles needed to see for themselves and to give firsthand testimony to the Jerusalem church that the Spirit of God had indeed come upon the Samaritans. And the Samaritans also needed to learn that they needed to be subject to the apostolic authority. The Jewish believers and the Samaritans are now both linked together in the same body. And when you have the truth 
You are united together throughout this life and eternity. But if you have a perversion of the truth, then you miss out on the unity and you miss out on eternity. And that's exactly what happens to Simon the Sorcerers. We look at our last heading, the disappointment of unbelief. Your next blank says you can't buy the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also that anyone whom I've laid my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Again, now we're seeing Simon's true colors. When he saw the Holy Spirit that was given through the laying on of hands, he offered them money. He had to have it. He wanted that kind of power. He wanted to go out and touch people and lay his hands on others so they may receive the Holy Spirit. Notice what's missing. Simon makes no personal mention of the gospel. He gives no personal testimony of repentance. He makes no effort to understand from the Old Testament about the prophecies of Joel and Ezekiel of the Holy Spirit's inclusion of part of the new covenant mentality. He's very focused only on the outward gift. He's very enamored with what this gift could do for him. He's only interested in its external components, not in the internal transformation. And he treated Peter and John as if they were fellow practitioners of magic. He wanted to know their price. He was still uh, wanting to know and share ideas, as was common with magicians, to share their secrets with one another. And so by his acts, Simon gave his name to the term simony, which is a term that describes throughout history someone who is referring to buying and selling church offices. But the Holy Spirit, again, is not for sale. Faith is free. There is no exchange of physical currency. Salvation and sanctification of the Holy Spirit is something that only God can do, and he does so sovereignly, and he does so freely, and he pours out his spirit upon his children. Isaiah 55, 1, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk and money without price. Again, you can't buy salvation, you can't buy the Holy Spirit, and then we read in verses 20 and 21, you will perish if your heart is not right. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You, neither, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Peter leaves no doubt here when he says, may your silver perish with you. The word perish means to be destroyed. It means to be ruined. As in John 3.16, the word perish is the opposite of eternal life. So Peter is not holding back here. He's saying that you were on your way to hell with your money. And Simon's heart is not right with God. His heart is hard. His heart is stone cold dead. His heart was filled with pride. And then we read verses 22 through 24. You must repent and pray to the Lord. And I should say there, yourself. You should repent and pray to the Lord yourself. Because look what happens. Verse 22, Peter again says, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Peter tells Simon that he needs to repent. This means to confess and to turn. It means to do a 180 degree turnaround. It means to completely abandon your sin of sorcery, your sin of the love of money, your sin of pride. You have to pray to God that he will forgive you but you have to pray from the heart. This isn't just a hoop to jump through. This is a whole new way of life. Paul said something similar in 2 Timothy 2.25 concerning correcting his opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Repentance is granted to us by God. But at the same time, you and I are called to repent and to put our faith in Christ. When Peter says that Simon is in the gall of bitterness, 
He's not saying that Simon is bitter at someone because of some offense. That's how we tend to think of it. You get really bitter, you get upset at somebody, and somebody says, hey, be careful that the gall of bitterness doesn't build up in you. That's taking it a little bit out of context because in this reference, the gall of bitterness, possibly referring to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, describes an extremely bitter and harsh and distasteful condition that has to do with apostasy and idolatry. So the actuality here is that Simon's mad at God. He's got bitterness towards God. He wants his own power in his own way to live his life like he wants to live his life. And he doesn't want anything to do with God, which is why Peter's saying, you've got to repent. You've got to repent of that and you've got to come to saving faith in Christ. And yet we're seeing here the condition of Simon's heart. And we know it was this way as well, because the next phrase after the, the gall of bitterness says that he's in the bond of iniquity. He's saying that Simon is in bondage to his sin. He's completely enslaved to his sin. He's a reprobate. He's completely depraved. And this has made him bitter and deaf to the spiritual truth in life. And unfortunately, Simon's only answer at the end here is pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. It reminds us of Saul. If we had time to go back and look at what King Saul did whenever he was confronted by the prophet Samuel about the kingdom would be taken away. He's like, I need you to pray to God for me. I can't do that. And the same is here. Simon said, I can't do that. Why don't you pray for me? But Simon doesn't need Peter's prayers. He needs to be doing some praying of his own. And in summary, throughout the whole narrative here, Simon has a wrong view of himself. He thinks of himself as being the power of God. He has a wrong understanding of salvation. He thinks that if you just simply believe and you're baptized, you're good to go. He has an insufficient view as to the seriousness of his sin. He wants to somehow mix his magic with the power of God. And all of that added up to a faith that did not save because Simon had a perversion of the truth. How about you this morning? Look at those take-home questions. How can you make sure that you are not deceived by a false teacher? In Samaria, they were deceived left and right until Philip showed up and preached the word. Then they started seeing the light. You have to be rooted and grounded in the scripture. What exactly is the difference between a true conversion and a false conversion? Maybe you need to do some soul searching in your own heart about the difference between the two that are outlined for us here in this sermon. And then number three, what did the apostles need? Uh, why did the apostles need to be in Samaria before the Holy Spirit came? Hopefully you can think a little bit more about the importance of the apostles being there to affirm both the gospel as part of the unity of the church. And then last, how can you make sure that what happened to Simon doesn't happen to you? The worst thing that could happen to you this morning is that you would think that because you came to church here at the beginning part of 2022 and because you've been a part of some of the ministries and activities of our church, that somehow you're automatically in the kingdom of God. And I just want to remind you this morning that you may be a false convert. It's only the grace of God that this very day would open your heart to see the truth of God's word and that you would open the scripture and pour over what God has said and that you would bow the knee to Christ on this very day, and that you would forget all of the outer things that you've ever done, and that you would just ask God to show you your heart, and to show you Christ, that you would come to know the Jesus of the Bible who died in the place of sinners, that you would be born again by faith in him and in him alone. And if that's you this morning after our final song, there'll be a few people in that back door. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love for you to pray for yourself that you could become a genuine believer in the gospel. Let's pray that God would again lead us away from perversion and always lead us to his truth. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to reflect on this story of Simon. It's a familiar story to some, kind of new to others. Certainly a lot of detail given here about the significance of what it means to be truly believing in you and not to be so focused on the outer things. God, forgive us for the times we get so distracted by hot topics in the society, by various debates. And we, we just want to, this morning, see Christ in all of his glory. And we want to make sure that we're understanding the true gospel 
and having true saving faith. And I pray this morning, if there be someone here today, a young teenager, a boy or a girl, an adult, a visitor, somebody from the Master's University, God, if we're just playing games with you this morning, thinking that somehow we've been jumping through all the hoops, that this morning, because of your word that's been opened to us and through the power of your spirit, that you would bring conviction, that you would bring saving faith, that we would truly turn from the perversion of the truth and turn to Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.